Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. Did you go without saying? I am your host, Andrew Lewis, and with one test series down in Australia, it's time to talk the main game, I guess, for Australian tests this summer with New Zealand about to start a test series against Australia tomorrow, Thursday. And joining me is our resident cricket expert and the next. Paul Connors of theatre, Cameron McDonald. How are you doing, Cameron? Very good. That's a cracking introduction. Um, I'll take it. You'll take it? I'll take um, it, yeah, just... Excellent. Now, before we get into the nitty-gritty of uh, talking about the, the first two tests of the summer and, uh, and the next three, uh, everybody's favourite uh, YouTube cricket video czar... Uh, Rob Moody, otherwise known as Rob Belinda, posted a series of videos yesterday uh, on the theme of classic catches. And one in particular took your fancy, which was from a otherwise unremarkable shield match in the mid-1990s between Queensland and WA at the Wacker, where Trevor Barsby took one of the all-time great catches at short leg. Just unbelievable. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't seen it, just get onto Twitter and have a look because it's one of those ones that he'd have missed it every other time out of a thousand, but it's just absolutely stuck so beautifully. Ryan Campbell, I think it is, the wicketkeeper batsman from WA, has smoked it. He's He must be thinking of at least a couple behind square leg, but probably four, and it just sticks in his right mitt. It's the most pure piece of short leg fielding you'll ever see there's often you know into the bread basket and then off the foot and then caught in one hand or you know something miraculous that that pops up off a, a you know bat pad off the leggy but um yeah this was something to behold if you haven't seen it you got to do yourself a favor absolutely so if you're on twitter um and we have some more breaking twitter news just in a moment but uh if you are on twitter at Rob Elinda, so R-O-B-E-L-I-N-D-A-2, the number two, and uh, you'll see a Twitter feed just filled with classic videos, including uh, one that he took, one that he's made up, which is a mashup of a bunch of 12th men commentary and the closest actual cricket highlights corresponding to that 12th man commentary. So... That's not, probably one that's not safe for work, but uh, but yes, he's done a 14-tweet thread on classic catches, and I think the Trevor Barsby catch, which is number six, he just sticks his right hand out, and it just hits the middle of his hand, and he can't believe it. It is one of the great catches of all time. Not uh, Rob Moody's favorite. I think I think his number one is the Adam Dale catch. Uh, oh, that's it, that's a classic, and I think Adam Dale's in the Barsby catch. So he's bowling. He features, a, he features a couple of times, but um, I don't. There was something extra about it because I'd never seen it. There was just something, uh, you know, a, about a couple of those shield catches. Another ripper by um, Brad Hogg at Backwood Point. Both, and, uh, um, both both WA matches because they used to televise WA Shield matches live into Perth. So. All, all of those matches that, if they had been somewhere else, would not have been uh, televised or, or even uh, filmed uh, or filmed because the I think the Channel 9 uh, station over there televised uh, West Australian uh, Shield games, home games. So that's why the, that go. footage exists. There's an archive of just cracking stuff like that. It'd be so good if we could watch it all, wouldn't it? But... um. Yeah, I think that's why those two stood out to me. But the Dale catch is unbelievable. I remember that uh, being televised on the news that night. And, yeah, that uh, was pretty spectacular. That was a Mercantile Mutual Cup game. So, and uh, yeah, I think I think the, the the thing about that catch is now Phil Emery would be using a bat twice the size, and he just would it would just sail into the tenth row with exactly yeah, the size. Yeah, he did all right. He times it perfectly, but he doesn't really try and overhit it at all. If he'd probably given a little bit more uh, oomph, it might have cleared the rope. But he's using one of those toothpicks we all used in the 1990s. So, Phil Emery, it, there's another good name, isn't it? 
one test match, so which was the one test match out of about 150 from start to finish of his career that Ian Hilly didn't play. Where were like they? The, uh, it was in Pakistan in 94. I, I was going to say that. Yeah. So um, Healy played about 70 straight, missed a test match, played another 70 straight, and that was it. Um, that wasn't the, a tubby test match, was it? No, that was in 98. All ah, right. The breaking Twitter news uh, tonight is that uh, Ricky Ponting is on Twitter. Oh, as of well, tonight, you're in trouble. And, what, what, is your handle punter? Or you... No, no, my punter is Ed, at Andrew Noll Lewis. Um, right. You can actually, it's a game I think you can play at the moment, is you could just click on his Twitter page and then refresh in about two seconds and his number of followers will jump by about 10. It is just astronomical. About 10 minutes ago, uh, it was at 7,300. And let me just check now. It's at a eight thousand four hundred and forty, and then it goes up yeah. by about one, two, one or two a second. So, but well, uh, I'm just going to do on. a live. He's uh, it's it's rather this is a difficult one. It's at Ricky Ponting. Um, <laughs> he's uh, had his first net with his son, so that's the one tweet he's got there. A moment some photos of him, you know. Uh, with his son Fletcher about to get in the nets and probably just as any good a strip former Australia captain to send down some chin music and, you know, get him off the front foot. That's brilliant. Especially if they're in Perth. So how good would it be if instead of talking about marshes all the time, we started <laughs> talking about pontings? I, I think it'd be better. Although um, I think I was as guilty as anyone else of speaking about marshes in the last uh, cricket podcast because i did i feel like i suggested that uh sean might be getting a guernsey but the top six did pretty well in that well, three of them did. series three of them didn't one of them's got plenty of uh plenty of uh credits in the bank so that's right we'll get to that unfortunately it wasn't much of a contest over two test matches um Pakistan lost both matches by plenty. They showed some fight at times. I think in Adelaide, the times of fight might have coincided with the times when it was the ball was doing as little as it did. Um, not surprising in a two-test series that it's sort of disappointing, especially when the home team wins the first test fairly comfortably. Then it's uh, hard to change the momentum of that. Yeah, it was... It- Look, you, you you basically called it when we when we talked about series predictions. I was hopeful that um, it might be a, a different story for Pakistan sides out here, and that we'd see, you know, some consistency. And really, they played some terrific cricket as part of this two match series, but lost both tests by an innings. Mm. Um, there were periods of great character, and and as you say. Um, there were small moments um, after lunch in the first test at Brisbane where they just lost far too many wickets too quickly. Um, and and then again, under lights in Adelaide, um, which can, I suppose can happen to anyone, but, but they just, there were moments where they weren't up for the contest enough, small lapses in concentration, which you basically called when we, when we talked about it um, at, at various times, Pakistan bats that, that um, put their hand up. Baba Azam um, failed miserably in the first dig in Brisbane, played a brilliant hundred in, in the second and, and um, another 90. And, and he's one for the future for sure. Um, you know, and protecting him is a fairly um, gritty opening bat. Um, the left-hander, I forget his name, but he, he is it Masood? He batted really well. Um, Rizman's in Brisbane and, and of course, Yasir Shah, like there is with that brilliant hundred. Um, and Asad Shafiq even made some runs. You know, there, there was enough to like about their batting um, when you thought that Australia's bowlers would have far too much um, class for them, really. But uh, Pakistan's bowling just wasn't up to it. Um, and the boys cashed in. I mean, that's what happened, wasn't it? I mean, Australia lost three wickets in the second test. So, you know, that's, that's a walk in the park. And I think it was a pretty pedestrian attack. They, I think, I think there's certainly some green buds coming through in terms of a, a top six or a top seven, but 
they're sort of decimated a little bit in the bowling stakes, a bit by bit by selection blunders, um, which is nothing new for Pakistan cricket, but also in terms of you know the money on offer for shorter forms of the game around the world. I feel like where if you look at the West Indies, you think some of their best batsmen are not playing Test cricket, but playing sort of as T Twenty guns for hire. It's it's sort of the opposite for Pakistan, where they're bowlers, and they've always had these this great tradition of seam bowlers and swing bowlers, which doesn't go hand in hand with with being subcontinental cricketers. But it's a it either is a lot easier, or it's or it appears to be a lot easier to to earn a lot of money, send down four overs uh, and play every other couple of days instead of, you know, the possibility of toiling two days in the field. Not in the Adelaide Sun. It was a pretty cold test match in terms of the weather in Adelaide, but, uh, you know, 150 overs in the field or something like that, which has happened to Pakistan in the past plenty of times in Australia where they've had those, considered those long innings is probably not as attractive as, the money they'll offer for not much T20 work. So I hope they can get it together. They're, they're about to play their first test match at, at home in a long time. It's encouraging that it's Sri Lanka, considering they were the last team to play there and that was, you know, what happened last time. I think they're playing uh, now, punter. We could give them a live score update. We could? Okay, let's go to the... But it was an interesting one as well because, you know, something I didn't realise in the lead-up to the series, which is just a, an oversight was that Muhammad Amir who should have led that fast bowling attack and who had been out here for the white ball stuff, wasn't going to play the test matches. Um, yeah. And having served his, his international ban, you know, has turned his back on the international setup, which is, it's, it's, it's massive to hear Wazim Akram and, and various other um, Pakistani commentators speak about it as the boys were piling up the runs, I think they were a little bit heartbroken about it since he spent five years out of the game and, and, and uh, has performed in Australia. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, at his his best was a genuine star. And um, we were expecting a bus to sort of pick up where he left off, but he's obviously been affected by um, the injury he suffered um, post our last series over there where he was getting wickets for fun. And, um, a good attack and then you probably could have played that kid from Brisbane I don't know if he got hurt but you really probably could have played him in Adelaide and the the other young fellow who got selected in Adelaide was not ready yeah so it's uh four for 157 they're playing in Ralpindi which is also encouraging because that's probably the Pakistani test venue that's closest geographically to Afghanistan so it's they've sort of gone to the most dangerous area of Pakistan, so hopefully that all goes off without a hitch. Sri Lanka won the toss and batted in the 57th over there, four for 157. Uh, Kuranatra, Kunara Ratna, yeah, the uh, opening bat and the captain, he made 59, and Yazir Shah is not playing for Pakistan, so they're playing Afridi, Nazim Shah, Muhammad Abbas, and Shinwari as the four bowlers. They've all got a wicket. So, and there it is. The, Another live score update from podcasts. That's what you listen yes. to podcasts for, in my opinion. Yeah, and the other yeah, live updates from days, weeks ago. Um, Ricky is almost up to 8,500 uh, Twitter followers in terms of other live what updates. What we need is for them to hear about this in India, and he'll, um, he'll start going up by a million at a time. Well, I mean, it is sort of. How many hours are they behind? It's 9.16 as we're recording this Eastern Daylight Saving Time in Australia. So once the majority of Indians come home from work um, and this It'll be go- on, goes uh, around, maybe work wake up tomorrow, you might have 200,000 followers. So um, I'll just have to settle for my 318 at the moment. <laughs> we have, well, all right, let's, let's make a part of this podcast. Let's um, hunt a Twitter watch. Well, we will do that. Speaking of triple hundreds, what did you think about uh, Warner's 335 and I guess the most contentious moment of the Adelaide Test match, the decision by Payne to declare? Yeah. I've thought about it a bit and I've listened to everybody saying, you know, both sides of the coin, I feel ripped off versus uh, he shouldn't have even gone past 334. 
I'm not a hundred percent sure where I sit. Like it was, it was, it was a masterclass, but there's, in my mind, there's an asterisk on the Matthew Hayden 380 um, because it was against Zimbabwe. And I think that, I think that probably would have existed here too. Um, now I don't think Warner had ever passed 50 in a pink ball test um, prior to this. And I think uh, pink ball runs are legitimate runs. You know, there were, there were some moments in, in this, in that test match where they sort of had to knuckle down, but he was never troubled. You know, he, it was, it, it was a really, it was a brilliant innings. Um, and something of a redemption story, although I'm sure he would have liked to have made some genuine runs in England. You know, we spoke about it when he was in, I think you used the words, was there anything more predictable than David Warner coming out and making a stack of runs in this test series? Um, a, a flat track bully um, more and more these days. And I think the Ashes sort of confirmed that for people. You and I both know that he's made runs in trying circumstances. Um, South Africa and Green Top come to mind um comfortable with where tim Payne declared um pink ball cricket as we spoke about um brings about some interesting um new areas for captaincy where you you really want to take advantage of of being able to get pakistan in under lights and how pakistan batted on day three would indicate that if they'd been two down you know, maybe the weather would have actually come into it a little bit. But having Pakistan six down overnight, I think basically justified Tim Payne's decision. I don't necessarily disagree with any of that. Um, I certainly think that in terms of pure match captaincy, it's hard to fault Payne, particularly considering, you know, what happened sort of proved him correct. And I do think, and I think this is a good point, that there has absolutely been an ethos in Australian cricket that the the team comes before the individual to a fault. So that however many runs Warner was on should not even come into Tim Payne's mind. It should only be the situation of the match, and Payne absolutely declared at the time which gave this team the best chance of victory in those unique circumstances, which was the pink ball cricket now you've also spoken about warner not getting past 50 i think that might have something to do with the fact that he's an opener and there is and and pain proves it you know you want to get the openers in at that time when just before the lights take over that sort of dusk time when the ball starts moving around so warner might have been thrown into difficult situations more than he normally would do facing the pink ball. So I think it's all interesting, but I I find it impossible to uh, to refuse the nagging thought in my mind that the all-time record was up for grabs um, and they don't... Wins against Pakistan in Australia come along pretty regularly. A chance at a test quadruple... Uh, doesn't come along very often, and for those reasons, I tend to think that Payne should have, at the very least, and this might have happened, at the very least, uh, sent out word to Warner, look, I want to declare, I want to get at these guys, you, I want you to get your 400, you better really get a wriggle on. And then if he gets out, that makes the decision easy. You just bring him in whenever he gets out. But, for I mean... And and then we found out that Brian Lara was in the was in the house. He was there, just like Gary Sobers was at St John's when Lara broke his record. It would have been incredible to see Lara come out, you know, sort of without anyone having any uh, realization that he that he was in Adelaide for that match. Would you be comfortable with D Warner sitting above B Lara on any list? I don't know. There's something that, like. The old cricket road, that's Brian Lara. Um, and, and that he, like, he was capable of just batting forever. I know, but Brian Lara would tell you that the 400 against England wasn't, it wasn't his best knock. It'd be the, like, the 180 knock against Australia or the double century here in 96 or any other number of really important innings, not 
400 on a road against a very, very ordinary England attack at, at the end of a tour, at the end of a five test series when they were spent. So I think we can, I think we can overthink records like that. And I'd be much more comfortable with Payne making a decision on declaring because of the situation of the match than what you just brought up that, Oh, you know, after all that's happened or anything like that. I mean, I really am just going full conspiracy theory here, but, you know, in terms of everything that's happened in the last one or two years, suddenly Dave Warner has the record. But it has been all-time cricketers, I guess, for a while, and it does then beg the question, if Warner had got there, where does he where does he fit uh, in sort of the all-time great test cricketers? Because it was, it was I think, Wally Hammond for many years. And then it was Hanif Muhammad. Um, and then it was Sobers not very long after that. And then it was Sobers for a long time. Then it was Lara. And then it was Hayden for about 10 minutes. Um, yeah. And then it was Lara again. So I don't think Warner's in Lara's class. I don't think Warner's in Hayden's class. But I think that's not a mortal lock by the end of Warner's career. He could get there. Um, but... It's, it would have been 400. There would have been the pink bull people saying, you know, there is an issue with this comparing apples and, well, comparing Golden Delicious with Granny Smith's. But, <laughs> but um, you know, it was still Pakistan. They were a legitimate test attack. Uh, you know, I, 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 I still think you don't turn your back. You give them the chance to get to 400. But then again... My favourite ever direct declaration like that was England trying to win a test match in Australia in 94-95 in and Graham Hicks scratching in the 90s for about 20 minutes until Mike Atherton cracked the cracked it and decided to declare with Hick on 98 because he had to win a test match and yeah. almost winning. They ended up three wickets short and I just, you know, and probably about five overs short. So I think it says more about probably the the unfulfilled talent of the Graham Hick career than anything else but the compelling argument for leaving him out there is that as you say you know we we chalk up wins against Pakistan and even if it had petered out for a draw um we would still talk about D Warner 401 not out mm. much more than we'll talk about Australia 2-0 and yeah. that's the that's the conflicting thing about cricket overall is that it is such an individual team sport. Yeah. Um, you know, like a, one, a real bugbear for mine in watching pyjama cricket is the way um, it often takes a batsman who's who's moving really beautifully in the early part of his innings, uh, you know, 15 balls to get through the 90s because clearly 100 is on his mind. Yeah. And that that's a short put your team in trouble later on. There was a while there where, you know, we were terrible at one day cricket, but Aaron Finch would, would make hundreds and, and David Warner would make hundreds and Stephen Smith would even make hundreds and, and we would get cleaned up by opposition um, who had, you know, fifties and sixties throughout their innings at better than a runner ball. It's a and, really good, it's a really interesting point. In terms of looking, also looking at cricketers who have a lot of 90s, a lot of being out in the 90s, you know, Ian Chappell will swear blind that Steve Waugh was one of the most selfish cricketers he ever saw. Steve Waugh has a ton of 90s and also, a t you know, a lot of hundreds, but he got, he probably got like 30 something test hundreds, but also nine or 10 90s. Then you something like Michael Slater, and I, I, my recollection of Slats is he got out in the 90s a lot because he just played the same. You know, he never changed yeah. when he got into the 90s. He was just like, I'm Michael Slater. This is how I got here. This is how I'm going to continue to play. If I stop doing this, I stop succeeding. So it is very interesting. I think the cricketer in the Australian setup who most reminds me of that Slater in the one-day setup in particular is Glenn Maxwell, who I think perfect, perfect has one or two, one or two one-day hundreds. I've just got to keep going. I've just got to keep being Glenn. And he's got in trouble when he's got on the test side. And, I, and I've said this in the past, for being Glenn Maxwell, not Glenn Maxwell was put in the wrong situation. Yeah, 100% agree. And, yeah. you know, he's got 100 in every format and I think yeah. three T20 hundreds or something mental like that. And, 
love to see his average come up by 10 points and his strike rate come down by 10 points. But he's always thinking of the team. Yeah. Um, and he's always trying to keep the run rate up. And it is a really modern way of thinking. I actually think he's, you know, it, it lends itself to really good short form captaincy because if you had a team full of people who batted like that, um, you know, with some good technique thrown in, um, that you would take the individual elements out of in the shorter forms and potentially not waste so many balls. Mm. And yeah, the other thing is about Maxwell is when he was put in the right role in the test team, he succeeded. And then he wasn't persevered with because he seems to be this sort of, as far as his test career goes, this sort of subcontinental horse for course for the course. So I'm, I'm, Speaking of horses, I'm flogging a dead one as far as Glenn Maxwell's concerned. I think uh, my opinion on this is is been well aired. Um, one thing the selectors haven't got wrong is Marcus Labuschagne. Yeah, it's so wonderful to see. This is just a this is just about the best Australian cricket story in the last four or five years, other than you know just Steve Smith making a gajillion runs. And the rise of Pat Cummins, I suppose. But yeah, we've yeah. got a genuine superstar there. Um, mm. A likable, a likable um, cricketer, and a, a beautiful technique. And this is one where, you know, they were. We gave the selectors so much grief for picking him in the first place with such an ordinary first-class record at the time. Yeah, and but you I just look- have to give over. To someone like Greg Chappell, who who can clearly spot them a mile away. Well, I think as a as a supporting public, we've been bitten a few times by them backing guys in. But the difference with the Labuschagne story is they've also said, "This is what you need to work on," and he's done exactly that, and now he's succeeding. He, you know, that that sort of story reminds me of Smith, you know, but it also speaks to his temperament, and you know. It's been a long criticism of mine, and it's a reason why Australia haven't been able to save test matches. Play your natural game, you know. You hit through the ball. You've got to play your shots. You've just got to be yourself. There's times when you need to hunker down. You need to play to the conditions, not only the pitch conditions, but also the situation in the match. And to see someone be humble enough to be like, yeah, I'll take that on board. I need to work on this. I need to work on that. And then absolutely, you know, do that to, to a, absolute 100% and then succeed because of it is so and rewarding. so quickly. It's yeah. only a year and so we're climbing all over everybody in a side without Warner and Smith. Yeah. Um, Boomerah, the, just the, the highest class bowling that you've ever seen. And, um, and, you know, he was thrown to the wolves in that regard. But within a year, um, and and a pretty extraordinary year when you consider the concussion sub um, rule that got him his his second crack at it really, and he's just never looked back. And um, yeah. he's in this really nice spot now, uh, having having made a few fifties where he's cashed in against Pakistan, and there's nothing stopping him now from having a pretty glorious five to ten years. You know, we Abs- spoke about it in the previous podcast that there's there is an element of he's going to have to do it when he's out of form, but it's like you talked about. He's, he, he plays it. He plays the situation and the technique is sound. So someone, there'll be a, there'll be one bowler who, who becomes something of a nemesis and, and finds a little weakness and whatever that ends up, you know, he he will still have a cricketing career, but you know, the ups and downs and all of that, but we've locked away a number three. For the first time since the bloke who's just joined Twitter. And if we could flick across to Twitter, speaking of, and get a live update. Okay. He's up. He's past the 10,000 mark. He's up to 10,100 followers. Amazing. Um, How many career test runs? Oh, he's almost up to that. About 13,000, I think. 13,000. So so he's going to destroy that in an afternoon. Um, just before we move on from Labuschagne, the other thing, and this is, I'm going to blow my own trumpet here, but I did write an article in the Raw a few years ago 
that talked about pretty much 30 years of Australian selection, pretty much from from the moment Border became captain to sort of the moment Steve Smith made it in the Australian team of Australian top six batsmen coming into the side, playing for a little while, getting dropped, and then coming back in and succeeding. And there was like 25 guys. Oh, yeah. And, and the fact... Yeah, and the fact that they had just, from about 2014, had just gone away from that. And blokes had one chance. And I wrote the article right after that that disaster against South Africa in Belarive, which had seen what pretty obviously was going to be Callum Ferguson's only test match. And, you know, they were going through guys like Alex Doolan, uh, as I said, uh, the aforementioned Nick Callum Manson. Ferguson, Nick Madison, I think. You know, got his chance around that occasion and they came out and, you know, might remain to be seen whether he comes back. Guys like Andrew McDonald, um, who batted in the top six, they came in, they played a few test matches, they had one stitch, they got dropped, they never came back in. You know, there is, there is, there is things that worked and I think there's, there might be a chicken or egg argument that I'd be willing to entertain, but Labuschagne seems to be, and dropped through no fault of his own in this situation because Smith and Warner were coming back in, but he's been out of the side. He's worked on something. He's come back in. So yeah, I mean the names you could reel off from and David. some of those, some of those hiatuses were you know it was a glorious time in Australian cricket that you know that a lot of your articles surely focused on, mm. where guys like Damian Martin are spending seven years in the wilderness and as good as Martin was and he he is up there with the most talented batsman I've ever seen, um. You know, and he played a bad shot in a in a second innings and a particular circumstance where perhaps he could have played the situation a little better, but went the Australian way and and played the shot and and didn't play Test cricket for seven years. But you know, then you think about the guys that keeping him out of the side. If we had a Damian Martin out there at the minutes, that cover drive would not have. Yeah, I mean, he'd also it... been playing to the conditions for three hours for nine. So, you know, with wickets falling at the other end. He plays one shot and he loses his spot to Steve Waugh, who played so well, he'd been injured, and Steve Waugh played so well in that one remaining test match of that series, he'd won man of the series. So, yeah. <laughs> it's a little, you know, it's it's very unfair. Um, but also guys like Hayden, I mean, you could you could reel them off, but hopefully Labuschagne is fully following in those footsteps of those guys. Absolutely. So to the main game, we've got a test series coming up against New Zealand. and There is Zealand... a remarkable stat line before we get there. Uh, yep. and, and I didn't want to bring it up where when we were talking about Warner, but similarly getting almost more coverage in the aftermath of that test match was that someone made three and someone else didn't bat, bowl or take a catch. <laughs> this was This was Travis Head, wasn't it? T-head, that's right. And so it's, you got to mention it, even if we don't spend too much time on it. That's another extraordinary event from um, the Adelaide day-night test match. I'm sure he put what well, I'm sure he put a return right over the bales at some stage. He, you know, there's this beautiful very... moment where batsman uh, <laughs> clipped it off the legs to square leg, and I think all the Aussies had copped on to the fact that that Head wasn't getting near it in the whole test match. And they just gave him the biggest round of applause for a fairly casual little, you know, bend and pick the ball up. It was a really lovely moment. He's a hometown boy though, isn't he? He's, he was playing in front of his home crowd and of all the places to do it, but he keeps his place. Yeah. I think he, uh, pulled what, what in football parlance would be a Cameron Mooney in the 99 grand final gets the medal. Yeah. <laughs> And just zeros everywhere. So so New Zealand are here for the Test Series against Australia. They started Perth tomorrow. The story on ESPN Crick Info is, the, is this the best New Zealand Test team ever? I'm old enough to remember the 85-86 New Zealand team that came here and beat the Australians 2-1. That was a pretty handy team. Richard Hadley took 33 wickets in three tests. They did something that they'll need to do here in this test series as well. They won in Perth. So, but that was the last time they played a test in Sydney and they haven't played a test in Melbourne since 1987. What do you think? Is this the, can you think of a better New Zealand test team than the one they're sending over the Tasman this time? 
No, I can't. But I'm, I'm probably just not old enough to remember 85, 86 and to hear stories about that team. Um, you know, there, there's no Hadley this time around. Put it that way. Um, they're going to have to graft their wickets uh, um, without that kind of skill. Trent Bolts versus Tim Southey. But um, unless the ball is absolutely hooping around, I think they'll, you know, be putting it there. They sort of will have to craft their wickets a little bit. What they do have is just, you know, and I think this is a lot of Kiwi teams have this is just a togetherness. They've, they've been playing cricket and they get along with one another. There's a good vibe around that team. Uh, they're a team of absolute gentlemen and they've been recognised on the world stage for their behaviour following the World Cup final. Um, brilliantly led by, by Kane Williamson, who, you know, who would be the, the second best Kiwi batsman of all time. Is it Martin Crow? Well, behind Williamson. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it'd have to be Martin Crow. And, you know, he was the other guy I would have probably mentioned. Uh, he was probably here 85, 86, was he? Yeah, so I think I can... Let me just try and reel that team off completely off the top of my head. So the opening bats would have been John Wright and Bruce Edgar. Um, and... Uh, not surprisingly, I think in that Perth Test match, they made 280-odd in about 150 overs. Yeah. It was it was a bit tedious. Um, they would have had both Crows, Jeff and Martin. Uh, who else would have been in their top five? I feel like I'm missing a middle-order bat. And then they would have had Coney at number six, who was the captain. Hadley and Bracewell at eight, at seven and eight, ahead of Ian Smith at number nine. By the way, has a test hundred and seventy three, mm-hmm. and then I think you and Chatfield and Martin Snedden. So was was Cairns in there? Lance Cairns, I don't think was in that. I think I think he might have been out of the side by that stage. Certainly eighty two, eighty three, when they, which was the famous one day series where he came over and hit the Aussies all around the MCG with the famous bat with no shoulders, but. I think by 85, he wasn't in the side. Yeah. I think by 87, they, you know, Cody wasn't around. Don't know if Bruce Edgar was still playing in 87. So, but that, uh, that 85, 86 team. And of course, Hadley was one of the all time great cricketers. An incredible bowler and one who was better at 35 than he was at 25. And they don't, as I said, they don't, they don't have a Hadley, but, I think beyond that, they're, they're a very, very good team. They're going to give us they're going to give us a hell of a shake. And if they happen to if they happen to play really good pink ball cricket in Perth, it sets it up beautifully because we don't know what the MCG and the SCG are going to provide. Mm. And the other thing is the, the it is a it is a pink ball test match in Perth with the with the times you know significantly different to Adelaide because we don't want to be watching test cricket from Perth at two o'clock at night no, at two o'clock in the morning. So. They are starting at one o'clock local time, which is roughly the same as starting at two o'clock this time. Or well, maybe it's not that different, but they're, they're sort of like one till one till three, three thirty to five thirty, and then six till eight. So mm. it might be sort of halfway through that last session when the time is to buy. You could see a situation where if New Zealand win the toss and bat, and so and they find themselves nine down. Uh, halfway through, you know, with 15 overs to go for about 160, 170. They might declare and send the Aussies in. Now, I think the purists wouldn't be happy with that in terms of, you know, the tradition of test cricket. But from an entertainment spectacle, geez, it'd just be, it'd be riveting cricket just to see this extra level of strategy. It's the, it's the selling point as far as I'm concerned on day-night test matches is this, added wrinkle, which which test cricket's always been about strategy and outthinking your opponent, declaring when the other team least wants you to declare. And day-night cricket adds that element, and it's another element to it. Definitely. I, I, I'm a massive rap for it, and I think it's probably the future. Um, Adelaide's long been a wonderful place to watch cricket, but there's, there's something extra about... Um, about it being a day-night test. It's hard to imagine Perth keeping a day-night test and they've struggled with their crowds, but maybe they maybe they get along because they can come down uh, for that last session. 
and, and Adelaide have a after work um, $20 ticket, I think it is. Um, maybe Perth's going for something like that to really, you know, fill up and get some atmosphere going for the, the, um, the session under lights. Um, but yeah, and, and every year you get, as you say, the purists stand up and say, oh, you can't be thinking about declaring now, but the proof's in the pudding and, and getting those, those uh, couple of cheapies when, because the, the ball starts to talk, it's just dip, more difficult to see. There were periods of the, Tim Payne was struggling to see it, you know, a further 30 feet behind the stumps. So imagine how you feel if you're an opening bat. Mm. And you're absolutely right. I think in terms of the crowds, the thing that's going for Adelaide, as opposed to Perth from a day-night attendance spectacle, is is the Adelaide Oval is right next to the Adelaide CBD and it's very very easy and straightforward and quick to get to. Uh, the ground in Perth is not an easy place to get to from the middle of Perth. No. So, um, neither was the Wacker. For, it was a little bit more straightforward, but it was still a trip. You, it was a good half-hour walk. This is even further away. So, and... You know, geographically not easy to get to because there's a big, huge, bloody river between the CBD and where the stadium is. So it will be interesting to see. Gideon Haig this morning uh, with some of the talk about uh, Boxing Day had a huge crack at the atmosphere uh, in Perth. It, I mean, it's a football stadium. It's it's built for that, but uh, we'll see. I mean, I personally, I'd like someone... Uh, either in Cricket Australia or the West Australian Cricket Association to get serious about redeveloping the Wacker as a first-class boutique stadium. and Definitely. And then you can play the test cricket there and we can sort of resume the tradition of test cricket at the Wacker with its, with its unique conditions anywhere in world cricket. But Which, I mean, I think, I think they've managed to replicate pretty well at this test match and we'll, we'll, we're about to get to the Perth conditions. But, you know... It's just a shame that the whack has been left to decay in that I sort agree, of way. Because it's it is a it, there's character to that cricket ground and that cricket pitch specifically that it it would be a shame to leave behind. Yeah, I heard an right. interesting talkback. It's a slight deviation, but I heard an interesting uh, talkback caller through the week who suggested it might be time to um, sell the Gabba on with a view to the. 2032 Olympic Games and a likely super stadium, um, we could be headed for, for you know, uh, some new places to play cricket in Brisbane too. So yeah, the landscape will certainly continue to change. Mm. I mean, we'll, I think we'll we'll get into that when we get talking about the second test. Um, yes, the conditions in Perth for this week is it's going to be 40 degrees for the next four days. So I think these Welcome are conditions. To Australia. Yeah, these will be conditions that are pretty foreign uh, to the New Zealand players, and it's probably Australia's biggest advantage. You've got a pitch that's going to dry out very quickly. Hopefully, the and it, I mean it is a drop in, so hopefully the this forty degrees over four days will certainly allow the pitch to deteriorate in a more traditional manner. But you know, there's been a lot of talk this week about big cracks appearing on the pitch. I think they've kept quite a lot of moisture in the pitch to try and hold it together right up to the point. But, you know, they're going to be starting play at one o'clock in the afternoon, probably just about the hottest part of the day. Yeah. I mean, you can't see any sort of, I mean, you, you win the toss, you win the toss. You don't even ask what they want to do. You just assume, I mean, you're going to bat. Surely Payne's bowled for the last time. (laughs) But I think, it will be very interesting to see how the New Zealanders react to to those to not just the pitch, um, which I think in terms of the drop in they've done as well to sort of replicate the wacker conditions as possibly as they possibly could, um, but also the weather, which is going to be oppressive, and they're going to they're going to have some long hard time in the field, sort of regardless of whether they bat or bowl first. It's just a question of when they when they end up in the field. Yes. Yep, and you know, I mean, this is the 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 test of a of a genuinely good test side. Um, three bats in the in the top ten in the world by the rankings. You know, can they really grind us into the ground? 
how good is how good is this is Latham? Um, can he take the shine off and and really protect Kane Williamson? And then BJ Watling is the equal of any wicketkeeper batsman in the world. So they've got enough going for them. But yeah, I, I didn't realise that that was going to be the weather. They wouldn't be looking forward to that very much at all. No. So after Perth, we go to Melbourne for Boxing Day. Both you and I will be there. Obviously, a lot of commentary about what happened on the weekend with the Shield match. For those who aren't entirely across it, obviously problems with boring, lifeless drop-in pitches at the MCG. This year, the curator's been trying to leave more grass and more moisture in the pitch. He leaves much too moisture, much too much moisture on the first morning of this match, so much so that the ball is leaving indentations on the wicket. The pitch dries out and the ball starts hitting the indentations and just goes, starts going everywhere, 20 strikes on the body in three hours and the game's called off. I mean, not ideal, but hard to see exactly the same situation happening in, in a test match unless there is some really variable weather in the lead up to the test match. That, you know, the, the curators and, and everybody have, have told us, you know, not to panic. But it's fair to say, I think it would, there'd be some crisis meetings going on regarding um, the MCG pitches for something as extraordinary as that to have been prepared for a Shield game. Mm. Um, and that was off the back of, you know, another um, questionable road style pitch in the previous Shield game. Um, yeah, it's it, it's an interesting one because, you know, I long for open contest between bat and ball at a Boxing Day test match. And the 80-some thousand people that turn up on Boxing Day and then, you know, the really good crowds that attend every day of the test match deserve that. They deserve really good cricket. And sadly, it hasn't really provided. Um, and so I can see why they're, they're trying to inject a bit of life into it. Um, and and they've gone a bit too far the other way. It would be, yeah, I don't know. It, it's hard to know what to make of it, and, and I can't profess to know the game of curating <laughs> anywhere near as much as you can. Um, the listeners may not be aware that, that last weekend I journeyed out to the Punter Mansion um, and got to sample uh, your fine work out on your property there, and um, you did a marvellous job, I thought. Oh, thank you. I might have to post a picture on the on the Facebook page um, of the wicket. Um, I did the best I could with my my limited abilities and limited resources. So it's the first time I've done it and and work full time during the week. I normally take the week off to prepare it. So, but thank you for the kind words. You may um, well have prepared a, an even contest between bat and ball if anyone on either side could wield either. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so I don't think I don't think the pitch had any any impact on the result one way or another. It, it did provide for an even con- an even contest between bat and ball as much as can be expected. But you make a good point. And I think this is really important, and I don't think it's been said in a lot of the commentary about you know. I mean, a lot of people are saying you can't have the MCG serving up these rubbish wickets, and I think. The point you make about the people who come along deserve a better spectacle and, you know, in terms of what the pitch is prepared is the right one. But what the reason why the, the, the Boxing Day Test match is not going anywhere, it's not because of the tradition, because it's a reasonably recent tradition. It's, it's a tradition from the early 80s. So the tradition is about as old as I am. But it's because 80,000 people turn up to the first day and, 50,000 of the second day and 30,000 of the third day where they struggle to get 30,000 to a five-day test match in Brisbane. Do we? The, the question that comes out of this is, do we really want test cricket to become purely a television spectacle? Because if that's the case, then we really should just be looking for wherever the best wicket is in any place. And it doesn't matter if it's a park ground or what. And then just set up the set up the television in television infrastructure around that ground and play the test there. Surely yeah. the crowds matter. Surely getting people along to attend a match matters, and that's why Boxing Day matters because people turn up like nowhere else in the world. 
Yes, it's a big, huge, 100,000-seat stadium, and it's a football stadium because football pays the bills. But this is just a test match that Melbourne people turn up to in huge numbers, in numbers that aren't seen anywhere else in the world. There are cricket stadiums that are comparably large, maybe not quite as large, but comparably large. You know, it's not merely about having the best wicket, and we do have that sort of balance because we have a test match in Brisbane because of the quality of the wicket, not because the people show up. You can't be ticking every box every time. So, you know, we have a major sport in Australia which basically is crowd-proof. That's rugby league. Huge sport in two in, in two of the main states of Australia, and it really doesn't matter if people turn up to it or not. It's a television sport. I, I think it's something. It's also something quintessentially Victorian. I just feel like we're we're an attending culture. We're you know we're just like you go, you go. You know you want to you 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 support your team. You go. So we just can't take it for granted, though. That's what I'm concerned about. If you you can't turn out an ordinary product over and over again, there are people who are voting with their feet because of the standard of you know AFL games, and I'm not one. I, I'm still going over and over again, and I still love it. But um, there are people who've loved it for a long time who aren't going anymore. And, you know, batathons and, and, and ordinary, like, I heard it described really well, but last year when the, the you know, in the third over, it was sort of carrying through with knee height um, to the wicketkeeper, you sort of went, wow, this, this game is, is done. You know, and it's. It, I think we've just got to put the money and the resources in, and and figure out how to make these drop-in pitches work better, because we can't take those crowds for granted. And and of course, for the optimum of brilliantly prepared pitches and brilliant crowds and a brilliant TV audience, mm. that that we have to be aiming for that. Look, I agree with a lot of that. I'd be less. I'd be more worried about the MCG pitch if they were failing in the same way over and over again. You know, they failed last week. It was an overcorrection. So I think I don't think there's a lot of evidence that they're taking it for granted. I think that they, they, they've identified a problem they're trying to fix it. Um but I'd probably be I'd probably be less worried if we were getting noises out of the MCG curating people like because the drop in pitches in Adelaide and Perth use slightly different techniques and slightly different technology. And I'd be more encouraged if the M people, the curators at the MZG were like, well, we need, obviously we need to move to this more effective technology to try and replicate those results. And we'll get a better cricket wicket. We believe we'll get a better, get a better cricket wicket if we go to those methods. So, but I don't think they're taking it for granted. We don't know what this pitch is going to show up in the Melbourne weather can be unreliable and unpredictable right up probably up until New Year's Day. So you can get a 14 degree, degree boxing day. You can get a week before Christmas where it's 35 degrees every day and both will include different challenges. So there's another challenge in Sydney, which is the third test, which is will peop, will it be safe for the players to be even outside? Yeah, it was tough to watch that clip of, um, of Socky Boy getting those last couple of poles um, in the thick smoke when you knew that even being outside and was uh, was quite hazardous. They're talking mm. about, you know, 20 or 30 cigarettes a day, so Warney would flourish. <laughs> Warney also flourished on the 14-degree bo- degree boxing day because that was the day he got his 700th test wicket. But, yeah. um, I mean, it's just it's just very worrying from, a, from, that, from that point of view that... Uh, that it might not be really. I mean, it's a, it's a few weeks away. It's it's That's three right. three and That's a half right. weeks away, and hopefully, you know, uh, the fires uh, come under control, and then a rather benign but yet effective breeze uh, blows the smoke away. But I mean, I, w- I wouldn't want to be playing in what they're playing, what they played at the last Shield match in this weekend, no. and. It's also, if it's like that, I think it puts pressure on the umpires to make a decision in the same way they would have to make a decision on on light. You know, visibility it, it will be a problem. Like it, if it presented as it um, did for that Shield game, I think uh, there'd be 
serious uh, questions raised about whether we could play a test match. Mm. Absolutely. And Sydney got rained out last year. So, you know, they're, they're probably hanging out for a good five days of test cricket. I think, I think the New Year's Day test match is, a, is an institution in Sydney and it's very well patronised and they love it. But unfortunately, because of when it is, it's often not the most important test match of the summer. I think, That's right. I think, you know, in one respect, it'd be wonderful for, for the Sydney cricket goers and for everyone who's still at home on their holidays and it's the one test match of the year where you're like, oh, I could sit down and just about watch every minute of all five days. Where you know, it'd be really it'd be really good if this was a meaningful test match in terms of the series. If it was one one or nil nil or even, you know, Australia down a test match and you know a result had to be chased and had to be got and and the conditions held up. I think Sydney's well overdue for that sort of that sort of situation. Hundred percent agree. Mm. Anyway. Australia, New Zealand, three test series, two of the best teams in the world, two teams who play attractive cricket. First time New Zealand have really been the main game in Australia and an Australian summer for a long time. What? How do you think the series is going to play out? What sort of result do you feel like we'll see at the at the end of that uh, five days in Sydney? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I'm not thinking uh, clearly one way or the other. I'm hoping for three results. Are you are you thinking we'll get three results? I think we'll absolutely get one in Perth. Um, yes. I really struggle to see a New Zealand win in Perth unless they're probably going to have to get some batting heroics out of Williamson and and uh, and Ross Taylor. And Ross Taylor has a big, big, big hundred in Perth on his resume. So, and then you know, I think they would have to get fortunate with, you know, getting Australia in at the right time. But, you know, there'll be a fair amount of the test match, which might be luck and it might be design strategy about when you can get the new ball in your hand at the and, and, and if you can get it in your, in your hand at the right time of day. Um, Melbourne and Sydney loom as massive unknowns. Uh, Melbourne because of the pitch and Sydney because of the climactic conditions. So I think we'll go into Boxing Day with someone in the lead, and I think it'll probably be Australia. But, you know, if the the pitch in Melbourne is anything like it's been the last few years, that's probably going to suit the Kiwis. And then who knows in Sydney. So certainly certainly a a low, low low-bouncing, one-paced, no pace pitch in Melbourne does not suit Nathan Lyon any. So, no. you know, it'll have to be Hazelwood and Cummins sort of bending their back. And that might factor into selection for Australia. They might think they need to bring someone else in. They might decide Matthew Wade's going to get a bit more of a bowl, which I think we're all really hanging out for because yeah. he can put it at 125. So, and then it'll be interesting to see what happens in Sydney, you know, whether whether they play two spinners. It's been a long time since Australia played two spinners in Sydney and it was sort of bread and butter of being, when I grew up, is four quicks in Perth, probably, you know, sometimes four quicks in Brisbane and two spinners in Sydney and sometimes in Adelaide. So they can't do it. They can't do it. I mean, spinners aren't as if um, the numbers suggest that you, you don't just, turn up as a spinner and take wickets there um, the way you might have in the past. And the second spinner is not, you know, not putting his hand up for selection necessarily. A lot of quick bowlers at the top of the shield, as far as wickets taken, is concerned. And O'Keefe would be up there as a potential um, candidate. Um and I just can't see it. I think that's a step backwards when you've got all these quality pace bowlers and and you've got, you know, some extra quality pace bowlers waiting in the wings. I think they'd love to give Neeser a game if he wasn't sort of a, you know, really good bowling all-rounder. It's just so hard to pick one of those guys. Um, you know, maybe Mitch Marsh is fit by Sydney um, and that 
sort of, you know, if, if, if head fails once or twice, then his position's certainly up for grabs. And Mitch Marsh did nothing wrong in England. If he, uh, you know, hadn't have um, broken his hand, he, he likely plays the last two tests um, and keeps his position because he didn't have to do anything. So um, they might value the flexibility that a, a batting all-rounder brings to the side. And Cameron Green's not far away, let me tell you that. Uh, a couple of shield hundreds and uh, a batting average of 40 and only batting since he's, I think he's got a sore spot in his back, but 30-odd wickets. So there's an exciting 20-year-old product out of WA where they seem to have all the all-rounders. Um, but I'd definitely be leaning towards picking, uh, you know, a genuine um, batting all-rounder in the Mitch Marsh type mould um, or potentially Cameron Green if they if we've won the series already. Um, series prediction on a limb here, and I'll say 2-0 with a draw somewhere. Um, I, I think uh, that's what I was thinking. Um, yeah. Look, I don't think Australia needs a second spinner. I'm, I'm, I was throwing it out there. I, I'd really like them to see, and I think they started to do this in Adelaide more through necessity than everything, but, you know, I'd like to see them bowl Manus Labuschagne a lot more. And, you know, he's a complementary bowler to someone like Nathan Lyon as he's turning it the other way. So there's just something that excites me about, you know, Australian leg spinner. It's, yeah. It's, it's quintessential. And it's part of our upbringing. Labashane, Smith, Head, and at a pinch, Matty Wade. I mean, if a team is turning up and making 800 against us, well, we can get enough overs out of those guys. Yeah. Um, as I mean, it stands, you're, you're, you're really only covering with the all-rounder position what, eight overs per ball mm. um, or something like that, and, and they're really awkward overs to bowl. And so the, the, the batting all-rounder has to make the side um, as much for his batting as anything. Um, but that five for the, that Mitch Marsh got over in England um, was a little, just a little carrot for the selectors um, who would have been filthy with him when he broke his hand. Yeah. Um, they, they would, they'd love to have him in there for the flexibility that he offers. And, um, you know, I don't think it'll stop them bowling Lava Shane. He's, he's making a very good fist of, of these leggies for a young fella and should keep bowling them. Um, but yeah, seems like the right the right vibe um, and I don't think I would have gone 2-0 if, if I um, if you hadn't have told me it was going to be 40 degrees four days in a row in Perth because I don't think I think they're pink ball cricket side New Zealand um, I think Bolton Southie under lights is, will be um, a, quite a difficult proposition I don't think David Warner is going to just turn up and make runs in this series necessarily Um and Labashane will have a tighter test. I think Smith will be required in this test series. Um, and I, I think he'll perform. I mean, so I, do th- I. Think, I think I, th- I don't know if he will have slept the last two weeks because he's missed. <laughs> oh, I mean, what do he make thirty or forty odd? I mean, hardly missing out. But um, yeah, I mean, he's he made four in the first match and then thirty four in the second. So he's probably thinking I'm due to make a couple of double hundreds so it was the it was the manner that he got out too i mean it, it, it's rare air for him to be done all the work but um played some ordinary shots so that's what will be stopping him from sleeping not the not the digits um yeah. but that he didn't get a little jaffa that he that he feathered to the keeper but rather you know played some industrial sort of cow corner type stuff yeah yeah on the, on the bowling versatility stuff, you just know that if Matthew Wade had played under Mark Taylor, he would have like 10 test wickets. He just would have just <laughs> known the absolute right time to, oh, let's give Matty Wade a bowl two overs before the end of a session. Oh, he's, he, you know, he got John Crowley out. He wasn't moving his feet. <laughs> yeah, Okay. Absolutely. I just want to, before we go, I just want to provide a Ricky Ponting uh, Twitter update. Um, he only follows 45 people on Twitter at the moment. They all fall into three categories, all 45. Now, I want you to try and figure out what the three categories are. And two of them are sort of subcategories of one category. So 
which which he's in both sub uh, subcategories of those. Uh, both subcategories. People he played with. Well, cricketers. Or former cricketers or just cricketers. Well, there's, there are there are cricketers. Golfers. No, there's no golfers on there. There's members of the Channel Seven commentary team. Ah, uh, yep. What's the third group? Um, dog tracks. Blokes who either play or have played for the North Melbourne Football Club. So Ben uh, Brown, Robbie Tarrant, Sean Higgins, Majak Dor, Wayne Carey, Jack Zebel, Boomer Harvey. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Is he the number the one ticket holder? I think so. Yeah. And we're up to 11,562 followers. It says he joined in November 2019. So he has actually been on Twitter uh, for a while, for a, for a few weeks, but he his first post was uh, three hours ago. So, Do you think he's been given a nudge by the Channel 7 commentary team to, oh. or the Channel 7 uh, team in general to make this happen? Very possibly, but you know he hasn't. It's not a promotion of the upcoming test series or everything like that. So, it's just good to have him around the setup, isn't it? Yeah, and one of his yeah. first Twitter replies is from the parody accounts of Fred Boycott of the video of that uh, mug substitute fieldsman running him out in the two thousand and five Ashes. <laughs> now I can't go to sleep. Now I can't go to bed. What we should do is um is tag him in that uh, Robolinda. Ripping run out clip because that, that's the other one I absolutely frothed over the other week. Uh, his ability to hit the stumps, his ability to hit them in, in really important times in one day matches. He was it's a rocket one, one, one of the great fieldsmen. And that mid 2000s one day side with Ponting on one side of the wicket and Simons on the other side of the wicket uh. was just incredible. Completely unrelated the, story. They won about thirty straight World Cup matches in that run. So yeah. that has nothing to do with that. So anyway, I'm an unabashed Simon's fan, you know that. And Ponting was an unabashed Simon's fan. Unfortunately, that's pretty much it for the summer for us. There's, these are the last three Test matches, and then they're off to India. They don't play uh, international cricket in Australia again until February. So and and that's it for the Test summer. So. I guess we'll have to talk about cricket some other time after this, but I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to this test series. It's great to have New Zealand here over the main test of the summer. It's great to have them in Melbourne and Sydney, and I hope uh, and expect all three test matches to be well played and interesting, and we'll see some great cricket from both teams. Looking forward to it. No worries. Uh, thanks for joining me, Cameron, once again. Always when we have our next chat, it might have to be about something else. It's also the end of the decade, so you know it might be an excuse for us to get together and talk about you know decade elevens and that sort of thing. So that'll be oh, that would you know, be excellent. That six like seven hour podcast, something like saying. that. <laughs> <laughs> saying, all of it, <coughs> not just the fact we're going to do it, but everything we say in the podcast. Until then, um, thanks, Cameron, and we'll catch you next time on It You Go Without Saying.